0: They don't come here to attack us because we're rich and we're free. They come and they they attack us because we're over there. We don't need to go populist left or populist right. We don't need to embrace neo-Marxism or neo-fascism, these disastrous movements from the 20th century. Turns out the answer is pretty much our Bill of Rights, our story. Embrace freedom. That's the answer. And if the LP has a
1: purpose, it's not to put people to sleep it's to wake them up.
0: We're here because we love liberty, and we're here because we
1: hate injustice. We are here to save mankind. We are here to fight. Join us, the Libertarian Party, in perhaps the most exciting grandest endeavor in history, the restoration of American liberty. Ideas spread, they can't stop them. An idea whose time has come cannot be stopped by any army or any government.
0: Hello and welcome to episode 60 of Decentralized Revolution, a podcast from the Libertarian Party, Mises Caucus and Mises PAC. I'm Aaron Harris and I'm your host. I hope you enjoyed my last episode with Austrian economist Patrick Newman. He's uh, really one of the rising stars in that field. And if you liked what you heard from Patrick, uh, you still may have a chance to get in on the Take Human Action Tour pilot event, uh, which is something that uh, the Mises Caucus is putting on on Saturday, October 2nd in Fairfax, Virginia. It's near the campus of George Mason University. Uh, it's something that if the model works, uh, if we have a successful event and if we get good feedback, we plan to uh, take this to several other college towns across the country, uh, probably um, early in 2022 or, or maybe that summer. We're not sure yet, but we want this one to go well. Uh, Patrick is going to be one of the lecturers that day along with Maj Touré, Michael Rechtenwald, Scott Horton, Michael Bolden, Tom Woods. Those uh, those lectures are free to attend, uh, but you have to get uh, a spot reserved. And so by the time this posts, I think there might still be a handful of spots left for the lectures. And I'm not joking in, in order to, you know, to get you to to, to sign up. There, there really are not many uh, seats left for that. Those are free, but you do have to register. So you'll find the link on the show notes page over at decentralizedrevolution.com slash 59. That's the uh, Patrick Newman episode, since Patrick is uh, uh, going to be talking about Austrian economics there. Uh, Also at decentralizedrevolution.com slash 59, you'll find a link to purchase tickets to the after party. Now that's going to have comedy from Dave Smith, Robbie Bernstein. There are plenty of tickets available for that, I think in part because I'm not sure everyone realized that you do need to purchase a ticket for that separately of your registration for the lectures. Those lectures are free. You have to reserve a spot, but your reserved spot for the lectures does not get you into the after party. The good news is the ticket's only $25, so even if you don't get to the lectures, can't can't make it until the evening. You can still come uh, party with us, have uh, that opportunity to network and get to know people, but you do have to get your ticket. Uh, So go and do that at decentralizedrevolution.com slash 59. This, however, is episode 60 of Decentralized Revolution. Uh, My guest is James Bovard. He is really a rare bird in today's world. He's a a truly libertarian journalist who is actually a journalist and and not just uh, uh, reporting what uh, the mainstream, the corporate uh, uh, overlords kind of want him to talk about. He's been writing about the evils of government for more than 30 years. And I've been reading his stuff almost that long since the mid nineties. I think Um, his work has appeared in USA today, wall street journal, uh, you'll also see his stuff over at the Libertarian Institute. Uh, he's written several books, some of which have done really quite quite well for a political book. And you can find links to all of that uh, over at DecentralizedRevolution.com slash 60. That's six zero. Now, I hope you enjoy my talk with James Bovard. James Bovard, welcome to Decentralized Revolution.
1: Hey, thanks for having me on.
0: I have been reading your stuff for... A long, long time. Uh, I was, uh, a conservative chronicle reader back in the day and through, you know, Walter Williams, I discovered some other libertarian, uh, authors. I interned at Cato in the mid nineties. And, uh, wow, so I think that's
1: way back there, that was, you know, mid nineties, that was back when Cato was hardline.
0: Yeah, they were, they were pretty good back then. Um, and there's, are still, as everyone says, their foreign policy department is still pretty good, but, uh, uh, some of the other stuff is a little left to be des- desired, but uh, anyway, I, I've been familiar with your stuff for a long time, and I, I really enjoy it. And uh, I don't know why I haven't had you on sooner, but uh, I'm glad you're here. So,
1: hey, thanks for having me on. Now, I appreciate that.
0: And, and you can uh, you can light up if you want, if uh, if that's what you do. Uh, it oh, doesn't whatever whatever you like on this show.
1: Well, I don't know what the state laws are in your state on smoking in a home office, but. No, I mean, I'll, you know, I try to discipline my smoking, so I don't smoke in front of the computer. But you know,
0: eh. okay, well, yeah, I, I'm not trying to tempt you, but
1: yeah, I'm ah, te- ah. Oh, that's I'm- a, it's hard to do to tempt me on cigars. You know, that's a real <laughs> arm twister. All right,
0: um, let's talk about. Uh, I, you just uh, were recording this on Friday, August sixth, and I think you have a fairly new. Uh, article on the COVID stuff and uh, uh, what we've seen over the last week or so kind of this flurry of um, you know these uh, well if you're not vaccinated you can't come in and eat and and all that kind of stuff so what have you been seeing and what have you been writing about on the the COVID and vaccine stuff lately?
1: Well you know you know for the last few decades a lot of people have accused me of being cynical but um, as Lily Tomlin said no matter how cynical you get, it's not enough to keep up. Yep. And that's true for COVID because the um, people who are in favor of um, maximizing government controls, they have kept uh, notching up their demands. You got the New York City mayor dictating that people will have to go have vaccine passports to go to a restaurant, to go to a gym or entertainment venues. Um, uh, it's uh, President Biden said he thought that was a good idea. I uh, picked up the Washington Post this morning. It's always a bad idea to read that at the breakfast table. But uh, folks there, the experts were were telling uh, Biden that one option is to prohibit interstate travel for people who are not, um, uh, backs, not fully vaxxed for COVID. So I'm thinking, so we're going to have a bunch of TSA checkpoints at each state border or what? Um, it's fascinating how the folks who are um you know early on had faith that the uh, that the shutdowns would work for two weeks you know um, two weeks to flatten the curve and then they then we had to do mask and then we had to do you know they they uh, closed you know it turned out that, that that every business except for Walmart and Amazon was contagious so they bankrupted a bunch of small and medium businesses uh, and that was supposed to solve the problem it didn't um, uh, vaccines were supposed to be the magic wand but for some reason that doesn't seem to be working out so well. So what they're doing now is practically launching a war against people who are unvaccinated. One of the things that's striking to me is to see the, uh, the see the rage at people who have not gotten uh, fully vaccinated, uh, to see them, to see uh, a lot of liberal pundits coming out. Uh, there was a, a guy at the at his cannon center who said, well, I mean, just grab people and hold them down and jab them and don't give them anything. I'm thinking, you know, I was raised in the mountains of Virginia, and there are quite a few hollows back around where I was raised. And if you want to try that solution there, you know, it won't go well. Same with, uh, it, uh, you know, with the idea of confiscating uh, guns. I mean, the Washington Post uh practically the same day as one of their columnists was chomping at the bit to inject everybody. They had this, they had a typical editorial saying, well, you know, all these AR-15s. You don't need them for hunting, and you don't need. There's no good reason to have them. So I'm thinking, yeah. And what are you going to do about that? You know, um, it's, But it, it's sad to see how how people now want to do virtue signaling with an iron fist, yeah. as far as mandating the vaccines, as far as uh, bringing back shutdowns. But it, it's amazing that the folks at the CDC, Fauci, and others have maintained any credibility.
0: Well, let's talk about that because I, I haven't been, I, I go through phases of kind of following the news on this stuff and then kind of getting sick and, and tuning out. But, and, and you're someone who has done a lot of like, you know, looking at what government agencies say over time and uh, you know, reporting and stuff like that. Have you ever seen anything quite like the, this, that the CDC narrative and, and even like you said, the 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 mainstream media narrative, corporate press narrative, it just does kind of change like overnight, like, okay, we were supposed to, once you have the vaccination, get your freedom back. And then a f- few weeks later, nope, nope, we can't do that. Like I, how, how do they maintain any credibility or is it like, or is it uh, like an illusion? Do people because all we see in the corporate press is, yes, we believe these people. Um, It's getting harder for them to maintain this, don't you think?
1: I agree, and it's interesting. It's surprising that they've been able to maintain any credibility at all at this point. Uh, They have a lot of support from the mainstream media, Washington Post, places like that. Um, But even some of those reporters are starting to raise questions. It it was interesting. It was last Friday that the uh, CDC came out with a report on the, um, the surge in uh, infections among the fully vaccinated up in Provincetown, Massachusetts, which I guess folks went there on July 4th uh, for the um, holiday. And there were like 75% of the cases, hundreds of cases, and they were, 75% of the cases were vaccinated. And uh, people, some people were saying, well, it's great the CDC is finally being forthright on this. Fact was, you had Massachusetts papers and TV stations that were heavily covering that story for four or five days before. So the feds were basically forced to admit that this, um, you know, that it was an illusion to say that if you get the vaccine, then you're gonna be immune from COVID. Uh, So, you know, they're they're talking about the very rare breakthrough vaccine, the COVID cases among the vaccinated, but uh, those cases appear to be snowballing, which is not to say that people, that's a reason never to get a vax, or any vax, but, um, they really oversold it. So.
0: Yeah. I, I think, uh, I'm one of these people that, uh, you know, I, I look at every instance, you know, like I'm not across the board anti vaccination or pro, and it seems to me to be in either camp is a little weird, but like, that's, that's what is really weird about this whole thing for me. And I think there's, well, I know there's kind of something else behind it that, You know, the vaccines weren't approved the way they're supposed to be approved, which as libertarians, we there's a different way we would like for that to be done. Um, And and then and and then uh, uh, the liability uh, um, shields um, and then what I, I guess I'm I'm surprised that more reporters are not like to me, that's a huge story. Um, That the fact that these things are not effective now and all we hear is apologies that, oh, well, uh, you know, you won't get as sick and and all this stuff. I'm just amazed at the media and the reporters that there's not even one that seems like they can get any traction if there is any that are is looking into what exactly is going on here.
1: Well, I, I think there are some people that are looking into it, but they, they have sometimes gotten suppressed in social media. Alex Berenson, a former New York Times science reporter, has been doing some very good stuff on this. He was suspended by Twitter last week for a one week period. I think he might be back tomorrow, Saturday. Uh, so, but he's pointed out a lot of the questions of the efficacy. Uh, if you look at what's happening in Israel, uh, the uh, long, the well, long term, six months. Uh, the efficacy seems to be plummeting, and that's part of the reason why there's a big push for third shots or more shots. And it's almost amusing to see the same people that, that told us that the vaccines were magic are kind of shrugging the uh, need for a uh, booster shot, a third shot, as if, well, I mean, this is a normal thing. Well, if I went to a car mechanic who charged me $2,000 to do an overhaul of my engine, then i drove 500 miles and then the engine needed another overhaul he said wait and he said well of course it needs another overhaul you, you drove 500 miles to be like you know that was a very expensive overhaul and it's there's a a, a course to the media as well that there's uh, uh that there's zero risk in these vaccines and it's like this isn't how medical interventions work um it doesn't mean that the risk of the vaccine outweighs the potential benefit which varies by, from group to group. Um, but, I, I mean, to see the downplaying of the potential risk and to see to see how the media went along with the CDC, because back in May, the CDC decided to stop counting breakthrough infections. Among uh, uh, Breakthrough means uh, people who were fully vaccinated for COVID and then later got a COVID infection. CDC decided to simply stop counting that unless those people were hospitalized or died. So, and then, uh, so that's going to not count 90, 95% of them. And this was a conscious decision by the CDC. But what that did is allow Fauci to go out there and keep saying, well, you know, there's no evidence of breakthrough infection. That almost never happens. It it was happening, but the feds chose to bury the evidence. Yeah.
0: I, I remember during the very beginning of the COVID thing, like I was careful, you know, I was a little worried. My parents are in their 70s at the beginning and I kind of watched. And then after a couple of weeks, I'm like, okay, I kind of see what this is. Um, and I was shocked that, um, since then and, uh, up until now, um, that, uh, so many people are just going along with it. Now there are, of course, you know, the, uh, the, the people who, I guess they, you know, take MSNBC intravenously or something and yeah. they, they just, you know, anything, you know, I, I knew that there was a hardcore, you know, loony left that would, would believe any of this, but I guess I'm surprised at how few people and how, how little pushback there's been. And I see, you know, I, I'm old enough. I was an adult on nine 11 and I, I see a very clear line uh, in, in my lifetime and, and sort of in American history, as far as civil liberties and the way people talk about, uh, you know, their civil liberties in the United States, whether or not they push back on things, uh, from nine 11, I think that changed a lot. And I think we're seeing the fruits of that now. Like I, even I, but even with all that, the last 20 years, I thought there would be more people who would be more upset, and less compliant than there is now. But that seems like such a a, a fairly small slice of the population. Do you, do you see it that way, that link between what's been going on the last 20 years?
1: Yeah, a huge parallel between 9 11 and the COVID reaction, the COVID crackdowns. Um, it's interesting. Uh, after 9 11, it was often Republicans who were indignant against anybody who said that, uh, who raised doubts about George W. Bush or who oppose the invasion of Iraq. At this point, it's liberals who are getting outraged at anyone who says the government doesn't have a right to force everyone to get vaccinated. Now, it's, you know, it's the cult of the vaccines. It's puzzling. It's It reminds me of, um, you know, the uh, Biden White House is putting out numbers each day. We had this many vaccines and uh, this percentage. I mean, President Biden said yesterday that Three hundred and fifty million Americans have gotten vaccinated, so you know it sounds like we're doing really well if we're <laughs> at one hundred and ten percent of the population. Um, but it it's it, uh, it seems similar to what happened in the Soviet Union with the uh, drive for collectivization of the farms. You had Stalin out there boasting about uh, this many acres were seized, and um, you know um, you know this many farms were created. Uh, Stalin said at one point he was dizzy with success about how well it was going. But, and so you have a, a process that's measured almost solely by government statistics. And the government has got so many incentives to either twist the numbers or to not count the failures. Uh, you, you know, for instance, with the Soviet farm drive, uh, you know, they, had, they, they poured all this money and power into the collective farms. But the small amounts of private farms were still more product, uh, productive. Similarly, in this country, you've got, according to CDC, 119 million Americans have survived COVID. So a uh, much higher number than what's widely reported. The, um, you know, the, the uh, news media tends to say 35 million cases. What's a case? You know, it's never really defined. But CDC has estimated that 120 million Americans have had infected with COVID. Um, And about 600, 700,000 have died. That The numbers are a little bit flexible. Uh, But that would mean 119 million had COVID, did not die. But with the way that the government's accounting at this point, the only thing that counts is the number of people who have gotten government-approved jabs. And that's simply ignoring natural immunity, which is a profoundly unwise thing to do when you're trying to have an intelligent, coherent response to a, a, a health threat.
0: Is it, uh, uh, and I again, I, I haven't been following this too closely, and I'm not an expert or even close to being an expert on this, but isn't there, is there something about the immunity that comes from, you know, just people getting it uh, versus the, how the virus acts when there's a, a vaccine? Do you know much about that?
1: I, um, I read about it. I read a number of um, pieces on that. Congressman Thomas Massey, the best congressman in the House, uh, has said he, w- he will not get vaccinated because he had COVID. He survived. He has natural immunity. Uh, congressman Massey, is, uh, who's got a master's from MIT. So it's, you know, um, he's posted a number of things on Twitter and elsewhere about the the comparing the natural immunity enjoyed by COVID survivors with the um the immunity from vaccines. Uh, a number of the studies have found that the natural immunity lasts longer, and uh, you know, uh, is a better bet. But uh, it, to see how the politicians and their media allies are have decided that natural immunity from co- for COVID survivors doesn't exist, and the only answer is get everybody to get an approved government vaccine. I mean, um, it's I, I don't see how people can trust. The uh, the government spokesman, the politicians, or their media allies, when they simply ignore the fact you've got 119 million COVID survivors in this country. Right.
0: Let, let's go back and talk a little bit more about you know 9/11 and the aftermath of that. What and it's hard to keep up with all this stuff, but I know that you've reported on a lot of it. Uh, and I'm thinking in in the context of what can be done uh, to push back against. Uh, you know, vaccine passports and mandates and, and things like that, starting with the, you know, a lot of the stuff passed after nine 11, I know there were groups on the left who kind of challenged some of that in court and everything, how much of like Patriot act stuff, what has been or was successfully stopped or or was any of it? And, and ha- if so, ha- how, how, uh, how were any victories sort of salvaged out of that?
1: Hey, I was trying to sound upbeat for this interview. Um, there were some uh, some victories here and there. Overall, you know, the act keeps getting renewed. Parts of it I think are permanent at this point. Um, there were a number of very effective left-wing groups and uh, legal organizations that challenged that law early on. The uh, courts were, in most cases, not welcoming. Um, one of my favorite cases on that was when The uh, New York Times exposed the NSA warrantless wiretapping of millions of Americans' email back in late 2005. There are a lot of lawsuits which uh, were filed um, challenging that. There were some federal judges who had wonderful eloquent decisions that were overturned on appeal, of course. And then uh, then the case that went to the uh, Supreme Court, and uh, this is finally President Obama was in office at that point. And the um, Obama Justice Department had what the um, New York Times derided as a catch-22 defense. You know, the um, the, the Obama people were saying that the uh, the people who were claiming their rights had been violated did not have any standing in court to sue because they couldn't prove their rights were violated. Well, if you got a secret surveillance system, that's you know, that's a great defense. Yep. And, and amusingly, the Supreme Court bought that, especially with the conservative justices. They just basically scoffed at the idea that the government would be doing this. Three months later, you got Edward Snowden blowing the roof off the NSA in a very uh, productive way uh, and making a mockery of all the, uh, basically showing the NSA had lied, that the judges had kowtowed. Uh, that the entire system had covered up vast crimes. One of my favorite details on that, I mean, to see how, the, how a lot of liberals lionized the FBI after Trump became president, uh, starting in 2006, the FBI FBI director would justify. They had a secret ruling, which uh, basically um, um, gave them the right to keep vacuum, vacuuming up everybody's um, uh, phone records, and the, because the FBI director would certify that the that the telephone records of all Americans were part of a terrorism investigation, and you know, this is a level of BS that would not survive late night comedy, but if you're doing it all in secret, you know, they get away with it. But it's that 9/11 mindset that rally around the government, no matter how much nonsense the government shovels or how much power the politicians grab. This is absolutely fatal for individual freedom. And, you know, uh, I hope we see more of a backlash. As far as the lockdowns, um, it's going to be fascinating to see how that plays out in New York City because it's, uh, uh, you know, you talk about disparate impact. Blacks and Hispanics have a much lower rate of uh, vaccination. Yet um, a lot of the politicians and some of their media allies are talking as if the only people uh, who are ha- not getting vaccinated or are Trump supporters with their red hats. Uh, but it's um, you know, there's huge disparities here. And I think um, I think if they try to vigorously enforce that, it will explode like a mushroom cloud. So So what do you mean by that? Um, if for instance, if the New York City government tries to um, um, have a very strict enforcement on the vaccine passports, uh, and and perhaps extend it to public transit, as some places some people are advocating. Um, you'll you'll need to hire a lot of inspectors, a lot of guards, and you'll have a lot of um, um, you'll have a lot of horror stories. It's interesting how the video cameras in the last five six years have changed how a lot of Americans view p- police brutality well think about that and multiply it 50 fold as far as in government enforcement of vaccination papers you would end up with a lot of video clips a lot of harassment a lot of abuses um i think it would undermine the the support for the program quickly but you know i've been wrong before
0: yeah i i, I would think yeah again if you would have described all this to me 18 months ago or more i I would have maybe agreed, but now I'm not so sure. Uh, And one reason I'm not so sure is, you know, all of those videos have to go uh, in order to be effective, have to get up where people can see them. And I think that we've, we've seen that the, you know, the major conduits, you know, YouTube is owned by Google, Facebook, Twitter, all those things, I think they're equipped and they would be inclined to, to uh, I think, accommodate any government request to, to, to stifle all of that. Do you, do you think that, I mean, uh, I mean, I think they would definitely do that. Don't you, or.
1: I am shocked at your lack of faith in Facebook and Twitter. Um, but they are, yeah,
0: they're private companies, James, they, they're private companies as libertarians. We should just uh, be okay with whatever they want to do because they're private companies.
1: Well, it's amazing how they've kowtowed to politicians and government officials. And they've been—they've done so much preemptive Um, you know—censorship is a term usually for government action, but if—if if it's private action uh, that's done in response to a government uh, command or a government elbow, it looks an awful lot like censorship. Um, I, I think that the videos would would get out by hook or by crook, yeah. and um, I think that the more that Twitter and Facebook try to uh, tighten the uh, tourniquet on the information that that they provide, the less credibility they'll have. But, you know, I thought that a year ago and here we are. So.
0: Yeah. Uh, Let's talk about um, uh, another big thing going on that I think is uh, already and and has the potential to do much more as far as uh, uh, affecting our liberties, especially people like us, libertarians, uh, you uh, wrote an article uh, kind of warning libertarians uh, about how to behave in this new uh, um, uh, regime. And, and quite literally, it is the new regime. I think it was John Brennan got on some you know, cable television show the day of or the day after the inauguration with his famous uh, uh, little talk about what they were focusing on like a laser. Why don't you tell us about that and, and what's happened
1: since? Yeah, John Brennan was talking about how the um, intelligence agencies would use their power graph for certain groups like a laser, uh, and one of them w- that he mentioned was libertarians. Um, there's, you know, uh, you had mentioned that you had interned at Cato in the mid-1990s. Um, I don't know what your impression is, but um, I've been struck that there is so much more overt hostility to libertarians now than there was 20 years ago. Yep. Um, and it's just uh, to see. Sometimes it pours out in uh, like uh, hot lava on uh, the social media, on Twitter especially. Uh, there's just a sense that, um, you know, that the only the only reason a person would uh, have a principled um, distrust of government, like most libertarians do, is that they would be racist or violent or extremist or or a psychopath. And it's like. Well, no, there's American history, you know. Um, oh, there was, there was a, um, and this is not, this is not something that came out in the last few months. This has been uh, percolating. There was a piece I did a month or two ago when I was um, uh, looking at, uh, you know, the um, expanding definition of extremism. It's something the Biden's put out a number of, uh, the Biden administration has put out at least one major report on the danger of extremism. And this is a very vague category, and people like you and I are probably in it, uh, at least according to some definitions. But I was going back through some of my notes, and I've noticed that, you know, Arthur Schlesinger Jr. was was one of the most venerated public intellectuals, liberals. I think he did some, uh, well, uh, he wrote, uh, he was the house historian for John F. Kennedy, did a book, Thousand Days. um, And... He had done a story, uh, wrote an article shortly before he died. The story was in two thousand four, and he was talking about you know paranoia of government stuff like that. And uh, he said, you know, you know the you know back in seventeen seventy six, you know the founding fathers were you know basically paranoid or too extreme or you know it really wasn't justified to have this uprising against the British. And I saw that, and I'm thinking, holy crap, because you know he said seventeen seventy six. At that point, there was martial law. They had seized the guns. There was a blockade. They'd shut down the press. They were dragging people over to uh, England for kangaroo trials. It's kind of like, what else did the, you know? What else did the Americans need to justify a revolution? If he'd said 1771, eh, okay, it's a different ballpark. But you know, for for people to be for these dignitaries to be saying there was no reason to for Americans to have a revolution after the British had seized the guns, after martial law, after blockades, it's like, um, you know, where do they draw the line in the sand? So,
0: right. So as far as, um, uh, what Brennan said and I see obviously how they've handled the, the January 6th thing, I think falls into that. They're, they're using that I think as their, um, that's the, their tip of the spear as far as their war on extremism at the time. Like I, I I remember thinking this is kind of odd how it happened. Um, and, and it turns out that, uh, I actually, I should, I should ask you, what do we know about the origins of what happened on January 6th? Pretend (laughs) that I just got off. Uh, I've been with Elon Musk on Mars and and no communication for the past uh, eight months, I just got back. Uh, What do we know about who's responsible for and what happened on January
1: 6th? Uh, We don't know nearly as much as we should. The U.S., the Capitol Police, the U.S. government is withholding a huge amount of information. Um, There were, you know, uh, a lot of people on January 6th who were protesting, angry about uh, Trump, uh, you know, losing the election. And a lot of them were violent at the Capitol. A lot of them uh, vigorously attacked police. These are people who should be uh, vigorously prosecuted. There were hundreds of other people who just wandered into the Capitol like they were, uh, you know, uh, passive and nonviolent. Um, unwise to be there, but, you know, they weren't busting things up and they weren't hurting people. They were there for an hour or less or two hours. Then they uh, peacefully left. So, um yeah, it's interesting, uh, but the uh, Biden and his Democratic allies decided early on to uh, convince people that the uh, clash at the Capitol uh, was a uh, was the um, the same as you know Pearl Harbor, the 9/11 attacks, and the War of 1812, and these are all things that they've literally uh, compared it to. It's interesting. Uh, I did a story. Let me see, this was for the American Conservative about two weeks ago on the coming January 6th train wreck because you've got all these court cases and you've got, uh, you know, they've charged over 500 people. The government is withholding evidence of uh, the video evidence of what actually happened that day. They're piling on the uh, charges to get plea bargains. But uh, so did this story. It was cross posted on Facebook by uh, American Conservative. And there was all this rage. There was, there was one guy who posed, if enough people here report to Facebook that this treasonous screen is false, uh, that this treasonous screed is false information, maybe we can get this fetid, treasonous, insurrection, cheerleading piece of fascist propaganda taken down. Report it. So I'm pretty sure he didn't like my article. Right, right. <laughs> But this is this is typical. Uh, I mean, this is the atmospherics. Uh, I mean, you, you know, I've said prosecute the violent people on January sixth. What's happened instead is um, instead of focusing on the violent people, what um, the, you know, a number of the police, uh, Capitol Police and others have done is vastly expand the uh, the, the definition of guilt to include practically anybody who was in that zip code that day. You had policemen, you had members of Congress at that recent hearing talking about how there were 9,000 terrorists at the Capitol that day. Well, that 9,000 includes anybody who walked down the mall after Trump's uh, overheated speech and then was w- was close to the, the Capitol building. They didn't have to do anything. You know, they just had to be in the zip code. But this is a definition of terrorism that makes no sense. And it's a huge peril to anybody who the Biden administration or future administrations want to label as a political enemy.
0: My gut tells me that this thing was kind of, uh, that the deep state kind of saw, you know, some people, the pro-Trump people and and kind of their um, uh, fantasies or hopes about, you know, invalidating the election and, and things like that. And uh, I again, it's just my gut, and based on almost nothing uh, but that, that that the I don't know the FBI or somebody kind of channeled and shaped some of that to to um, uh, to orchestrate this what turned into a, a spectacle. Is there anything behind that, or or was it Trump, you know, riling people up, or or something else?
1: Well, you know, there's lots of great information on that. We haven't seen it. Um, if, if you look at what happened with the uh, so-called plot to kidnap Michigan Governor Whitmer, it turned out that I think half or more of the so uh, of the uh, people that were involved were government agents, a number of FBI folks. The you know the the FBI the, the FBI had an undercover agent there. He was their lead guy. He he sort of messed up because the case hasn't gone to trial yet. But but that guy got arrested for you know. Uh, severely beating his wife after the two of them had gone to a a swingers uh, party. So, um, you know, it's if J. Edgar Hoover was still around, that guy would have been transferred to Alaska long ago. So that agent would have been transferred. Um, You know, the FBI has done so many, you know, entrapment operations to uh, push forward terrorist plots. Uh, it's unfortunate the Supreme Court has effectively defined entrapment out of existence, right. and thereby assured we get a lot more of it. Um, I don't know at this point as far as what the um, what role, if any, the federal federal agents, undercover agents, or other government operatives might have had on January 6th. But it's frustrating that th- that there are chances of finding out anytime soon, or slim and none and slim just left town so what
0: what what do you mean by that where is the info and and why is it being held back is it all the fbi and the capitol police have it or
1: what
0: what what do you deduce might be there and, and who has it
1: um if the fbi had undercover agents or or informants or other operatives uh working with the groups that were the lead elements for the uh January 6th ruckus, um, they have invaluable information that if they put on the table, um, Americans can have a better understanding of how things got out of control. I mean, um, the Capitol Police Inspector General has issued a couple reports. He has basically um, totally flogged the uh, police leadership and I think some of the congressional leadership by implication for the incredible failures of preparation. There were all the warning signs. I mean, I was seeing stuff on Facebook and elsewhere. You know, there are all these folks who were chomping at the bit to come raise hell. And, you know, and Trump fires them all up and sends them down the uh, down the mall. I mean, it doesn't, you know, Barney Fife could have figured this out. Right. But you have all these wizards and these uh, intelligence agencies that we spend, you know, God knows how many billion per year on and like, Oh, we never saw that coming. I mean, um, Parler, I believe, the, um, the Parler gave a huge number of uh, emails and other messages to the FBI ahead of time of people that were talking about violence. That's my impression. I might be a little bit off on that, but, you know, you had, you know, there were all kinds of warnings flooding in. So um, it just makes you wonder how could the government fail so badly?
0: Yeah. Uh, also I've seen, um, I, I I moved down here to Tennessee from Ohio back in the spring and I saw, um, in the time going back through Cincinnati, I I saw a couple of billboards encouraging people to to snitch on people they knew who might've been involved in, in the January 6th thing. Have you ever seen anything like that happen in America on the wide scale? And, And is, has anything come of that? What's
1: what's going on there? Uh, Well, they've certainly got a lot of reports. (laughs) They've had a huge number of reports come in. Some of them are accurate, some are not. Uh, But this is part of the reason. uh, Let me pull up the numbers here on how many reports they had. The the, the feds are sorting through 237,000 digital tips, 1 million parlor videos, and images comprising 40,000 terabytes of data, that's equivalent to 10 million photos, 20,000 hours of video, 50,000 filing cabinets of paper documents. Now, this is not counting the 14,000 hours of surveillance video from inside the U.S. Capitol that was taken by the Capitol Police or by other uh, capital U.S. Capitol uh, officials or officers. So, with the um, you know with the hidden, not hidden cameras, but whatever, uh, and and the government's foot dragging on bringing this out because that's going to show a whole lot more of what we want to see. But there was a um, one expert said that the um, cases against on the January 6th protesters are being built on a Tower of Babel nightmare. Because you have this huge amount of information. It's kind of out of control. Uh, The government's doing a very poor job of organizing it so far. Maybe accidentally, maybe on purpose. As I mentioned in a recent article, it's a little hard to tell because, you know, there's a lot of government employees who are slow readers. So, um, but there are a lot of questions. I would love to see transparency on January 6th. And, you you know, I think it's, uh, there are folks that uh, deserve to be vigorously prosecuted. And, you know, the the idea of going out uh, and violently attacking police, you know, bad idea. Um, so anyhow, you, um, I think you,
0: it was in one of your pieces and, or I heard you talk about it maybe with Scott Horton or another podcaster, uh, a few months ago about how libertarians should comport themselves online, uh, and in person, given the fact that, um, you know, that this is 2021 America and not 1996 America, What uh, what should we be careful about? How can we still engage in uh, activism, critique of government, uh, without uh, uh, drawing uh, catching a charge or something like that?
1: That's a great question. Um, I've known people that were taken down by informants, and um, I was at a protest last uh, a protest after a, a, a no knock raid killing. Of a young guy who was actually fe- seemed fairly libertarian. He was a John McAfee uh, follower, um, at least on Twitter. Uh, and there were there weren't that many people at the protest, but a number of them just kind of looked like government informants. And uh, I mean, they were just screaming at the police with megaphones and all these profanities. And I'm thinking, you know, first of all, it's, you know, it's a really counterproductive um, way to do a protest, but you're also wondering because they're encouraging other people to to behave the same and the other people might not have legal immunity. So um, people need to use their brains simply because someone tells you that they're libertarian doesn't mean they're your friend. Uh, If someone's encouraging you to do anything that's violent, you know, that's a triple warning sign. Uh, There was a case, well, uh, uh, there've been cases where undercover agents or informants gave people pipe bombs and sent them off to make a blast. The person gets nailed. You know, if someone wants to wants to give you a pipe bomb, they're probably not your friend. Yeah. Um, there was um, I, I talked to the Maryland Libertarian Party in April, great bunch. Uh, speech was going great till the police came and shut it down, but that's a different story. And so I was I was talking about some lawyers' advice who I'd seen. There was uh, there were a couple of guys called uh, Pot Brothers at law. And they had, uh, you know, they would do videos on um, what you should do if you were, you know, looking at being you're going to be arrested for a narcotics violation. They had four words of advice, and I don't know what the family, you know, standards are for your uh, podcast. I'll modify. I said, shut you... shut the hell up. How about that? Right, right. Uh, and, you know, talking to to the libertarian party, you know, I managed to get the audience chanting that shut the hell up. Uh, you know, because it's not like you can, and, you know, there's another danger, uh, you know, people think, well, you know, I'm American. I got free speech. I can say what I want. You know, if you're having a private conversation and someone's taping it and, you know, and, and he's, and he or she is saying, gee, it'd be great to, Teach the feds a lesson. Blow up the courthouse. Blow up a post office. This uh, other, and you're on the tape, and, and you're saying, yeah, well, yeah, yeah, well, that teach them a lesson. Boom, your ass is fried. Right. I mean, you don't have free speech around government informants who are taping your comments. Yep. and you know, people people need to be not naive about that. It's you know, I've talked to a lot of good-hearted folks who were you know pro freedom. Maybe they call themselves maybe a libertarian, maybe not. But often there's a level of naivety there, this, you know, chilling to me because it's like, you know, this is a good person, you know, keep your ass out of jail. So, yeah, I,
0: I agree. And, and I, I'm sure people might be um, tired of hearing me talk about this. But as I said before, this is not the America that you and I grew up in. And I don't say that as a, like a, you know, a boomer lamenting the fact that, you know, whatever. Um, I I just say that it's very like, I, I just had, we just had um, uh, someone cancel his or her uh, monthly donation to the Mises caucus because this person was afraid of possible repercussions uh, at work. uh, because You know, and and, um, I've heard other people um, like, some of the stuff around the, like the critical race theory stuff that, um, you know, schools and corporations are, are, are pushing that, uh, I've heard other people who have said that they are afraid to say anything about, you know, anything related to, to race or something like that out of, uh, out of fear. And if you, again, if you would have told me in the early nineties, that that this was going to be America, that people were afraid to give um, an unpopular opinion that, you know, again, not someone calling for, for, for violence or, you know, just outright hatred and intimidation, something like that, but just, just slightly divergent. uh, Like, I I don't agree that all white people are racist, you know, that people are afraid to say things like that. Like it, it, I've never, never in a million years did I uh, imagine uh, that that would happen.
1: Well, um, I agree. It's surprising. It's uh, it's depressing. I mean, I run into that a lot with some of the work I do. Uh, it's interesting. Um, back, you know, turning the clock way the hell back to the 80s, maybe the early 90s. There are a lot of op-ed editors who enjoyed articles that raised the ruckus. They got a lot of uh, letters coming in that you know people talked about. Um, that's not so much the case now. I think uh, the uh, op-ed editor is a lot more risk-averse. I was told that actually by one of the the uh, the the, uh, the editor-in-chief of the op-eds for one of the largest syndicates, uh, and it's sad because um, what happens is that the newspapers and the media in general make themselves more boring, so people stop reading, and so you know there's a downward spiral where you get more and more ignorant folks. Um, and, but that doesn't stop them from being full of rage. Um, I don't know. I, I mean, I don't, you know, there were, it, it's chilling to me to see the enthusiasm for censorship at this point in this country. It's not nearly as bad as it is in a place like Britain. Well, that's a hell of a standard. Um, but um, just, the, just the intolerance. I mean, um, I don't know. I mean, I've, you know, I've had a couple of Twitter uh, and a couple of things that set folks off on Twitter, like, you know, if it's, well, no, I'll just draw the curtain of mercy on that. Okay.
0: So. Well, let's talk a, a little bit about, you mentioned, you know, talking to uh, op-ed editors and things like that. And I actually, I have a degree in journalism and was a, you know, a suburban newspaper reporter for a little while. And um, I have my own thoughts on, on what's happened to the journalism business over the last, you know, over my lifetime, but I'd be be interested to hear what your experience has been. Cause you've had some, you know, you've had your byline in some pretty big publications, including USA Today, which might be the biggest, or at one time was, I think the biggest circulation paper in America. What, uh, what was it like when you were first uh, starting out uh, as a libertarian and how has, how else has, have things changed as far as how you do your job and, and where you can, where you're able to, to place your work?
1: Good question. Um, well, you know, I was, um, I'll just give you the thumbnail bio here. I was born in Iowa, raised in the mountains of Virginia, went to Virginia Tech for a few years and I dropped out because I wanted to be a writer. Um, I had a few years where I sold almost nothing, but when I was 22, I managed to get a piece in the New York Times op-ed page. That was in 1979. That was, yeah, It was in the first decade of the op-ed page. It was still a lot more open then. It was a satire on the failure of the all-volunteer Congress. And it was the kind of edgy thing that I I, I don't think it would be run nowadays. But uh, I did some more pieces for the Times. I started writing quite a bit for the Wall Street Journal. Um, you know, part of it was finding really good editors who, um, t- who, who, I, I, who I appreciate their judgment, could work with them. Uh, people like Tim Ferguson at the uh, wall Street Journal Bob Semple Kyle creighton at New York Times Then later on people like Barbara Phillips and Amne um, uh at the uh, wall Street journal um, adders come and go and uh, you know markets close markets open uh, I you know after 9/11 there were a lot of, a lot more doors that were closed because Almost from the you know first day, I was saying, well, wait a minute. You know, the president says he's going to rid the world of evil. And do we need more evidence that he's full of crap? Uh, but instead, there was so much cheerleading for the war and uh, the Iraq war. Then there were so many apologetics for torture. I was going through some notes a couple of days ago about some of the speeches I gave in 2004, uh, different places in the country and the Freedom Fest in Las Vegas. National Libertarian uh, Party Convention. And, you know, uh, it reminded me that I got booed when I criticized the Iraq war and torture by libertarian audiences. Uh, And that happened quite a few times after that. So um, that was that was eye opening. Um, But, you know, there are they're they're good they're They're tough and smart editors. And, um, you know, I don't need to find editors that are libertarian as long as they don't think that libertarian as long as they don't think that libertarianism is a form of intellectual leprosy. And unfortunately, this is more of the mindset at this point, especially among progressives. And, you know, there's some conservatives who have always had a lot of distrust of them because we don't like Russell Kirk. Uh, but um, no, I mean, you know, you manage to survive, you know, doors closed, doors open. Eh. Still here.
0: How has it been as far as trying to uh, make contact with sources, uh, freedom of information stuff, just huh. the the day to day nuts and bolts? of What a reporter does that's got has to have gotten tougher over the last thirty years.
1: Oh yeah, uh, I did a story I think two years ago for the USA Today on the, an op-ed on the Freedom of Information Act and how it basically become a sham. Because the government, you know, openly lies about whether they have the information that you request. Nope, it doesn't exist. Go away. Um, I was, you know, I was doing some research uh, about a decade ago. So I sent, um, you know, I made a list once of the number of uh, chiefs of federal agencies and cabinet secretaries that had public, publicly denounced me for articles I'd written. And so I was curious to see what some of those agencies had, what else they had about me on their file. So I filed a FOIA with the FBI. In 1995, after I wrote about uh, Ruby Ridge for Wall Street Journal, FBI Director Lewis Free uh, condemned me in public in a response to Letter of the Editor, to the Journal and Washington Times and other places. So I was curious, well, what do you have about me in, in your files And So I filed a FOIA with the FBI. Answer comes back, your name doesn't exist in the files. So I'm thinking, oh, they must have lost that letter to the Editor. So, you know... Um, I've had experience with the Justice Department, uh, you know, it, it's sad. The Freedom of Information Act, it was the presidents and others have talked about how it's a bedrock of democracy, accountability, all this stuff, you know, day to day that, you know, the bureaucrats know that they can get away with screwing people who file FOIA applications. So, I mean, uh, there there was one agency, and I think it was the CIA, maybe it was another one, but said that, um, you know, if someone doesn't file a lawsuit after their FOIA FOIA request is turned down, then we assume that they're not really seriously trying to get the information. So (laughs) uh, another great example on that is Obama, you know, um, Obama liked to brag about having the most transparent, transparent administration history. But, um, you know, shortly after he took office one the, the White House counsel sends out a memo to the FOIA offices around the government and announces that if there's a FOIA request that, that, might, uh, that might concern the image of the uh, Obama administration, then there are White House equities. That was the phrase. White House equities that are, con- uh, are of concern, so, th- so the White House had to approve that FOIA response. So you had a lot of FOIA requests that were delayed for years or totally buried because of White House equities,
0: what does that mean? I don't even know what that that means in that context.
1: Uh, it you know it means that the White House political officials have a veto power over any disclosure of federal information that might embarrass the administration. Yeah, I mean this was something that was covered by uh, uh, Politico uh, in two thousand fourteen. Five years after it started, Washington Post basically ignored it. I mean, you know, it should have been a huge scandal, but, you know, by, uh, but uh, President Obama had his halo. So it kind of like, oh, well, we wish he wouldn't do that. But, you know, yeah. uh, Trump's record on FOIA was very bad. And I assume Biden's will be even worse. So, so there,
0: you know, we, we, our system kind of depends on an adversarial, at least skeptical press. And I, I really haven't. Again, I think there's a, a a big difference pre and post 9/11. Um, but do you think? Uh, I mean, have what what is your opinion on? Do you think that uh, uh, reporters and editors and you know publications and, and, and television? Do you think they are afraid that they won't get access to anything if they pursue stories? Do you think that is the government using that? Like, hey, we won't let you into the press conferences or. We won't talk to you. How or, or are they much more willing? What's your sense of that?
1: Um, well, it's it, it's a split answer because there's a lot of journalists who would love uh, Biden no matter what he did or what he said. I mean, these are people that drank the Kool-Aid long ago. There are others that could be somewhat critical, but you know, there was a, I think it was in reference to George W. Bush. Someone said that the Bush administration made great use of the uh, journalist's desire for a one-on-one interview with the president, because that does so much to enhance their career. Uh, uh, here's someone who's sitting down with the president, and you know, you get the camera shots, and you know, all this stuff. I mean, it's a profoundly corrupt uh, broadcast media, especially a uh, type of environment where where that would be valued much higher than someone like uh, Seymour Hersh or um, other reporters who had exposed things that helped, uh, you know, that uh, bloodied the nose of a president yeah. who was abusing his power or lying to the American people. So, um, and then there's some other journalists who are skepticals or or opponents. Some of them are doing uh, some good work pushing back. The Fox News correspondent, in the White House has been raising some good hell lately. Uh, and there's, there's other journalists elsewhere who are raising questions, but The, um, you know, but the spotlight doesn't tend to be on them. So where do you go
0: for news? What reporters, websites, publications? Uh, uh, I think people always ask me a lot um, because they, you know, they know I have a little bit of a background in journalism and I, and I uh, have lots of opinions on things. So they say, well, if you don't believe the New York times, well, where do you go? So what's where should uh, uh, libertarians or other, you know, free thinkers,
1: be looking for their news? Um, everything I know, I learned from the Washington Post. <laughs> um, you know, there's a bunch of different sources. I mean, on, uh, on Twitter, I follow less than 150 people. Uh, but, you know, the, many of these folks are very, very sharp folks. There are some news sources I follow. Um, you know, I look at the Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, New York Times, Um, antiwar.com libertarian institute uh, zero hedge um, USA today Uh, so um, but you know the um, google searches uh, often to pull up things but there's a lot of good leads on twitter I do a lot of searching on twitter that gives me some good uh, you know oh here's something which I should look at or here's something that I missed Um, and you know I enjoy reading and trying to pull the pieces together and, you know, like, you know, sitting at the breakfast table this morning and seeing, uh, you know, the front page article, Biden, uh, you, know, p- uh, you know, Biden encouraged to use more muscle to get vaccines, more vaccines in. And, you you know, you and you're flipping past the first uh, in, in the middle of the section and yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, oh, so someone's saying that they should prohibit people who are unvaxxed from interstate travel. Yeah. Oh, uh, this is significant. I mean, this is, this is kind of close to home. It's like, well, you know, I guess across the Potomac river for the last time. So, and shit, I'm on the wrong side of it. So, uh, but um, yeah, go ahead. You were going to ask?
0: No, I, 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 uh, I think that that's my answer is somewhat similar that you can't um, rely on just sort of, a couple of sources that there's no like one source that they're always right. That, that you have to kind of compare. And, and then I think that's a, that's a good tip to, to see what people are saying on Twitter to kind of give you leads and ideas, because I I think that the, the smaller uh, places uh, like, uh, you know, that uh, guests that Scott Horton has on from like, what is it? Counterpunch and uh, places like that have, have some good stuff, but, the The places who are doing some of that good work are so small compared to uh, Washington post, New York Times, and all that 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 they don't they're not covering every story or even every aspect of a story just because they don't have the the manpower. So I think it really is um, you you have to take it where you can get it and be think critically and and look at a lot of different things.
1: Yeah, I mean, and, and a huge part of that is to have a good information base, and also to be looking at things through a paradigm. And the, you know, the, for me, the paradigm is, you know, the government is not always lying, but let's try and figure out, the, you know, the sort of things. And sometimes, sometimes the government is not lying; it's simply uh, ignorant or n- not aware of the facts of the matter. Uh, thanks for mentioning Counterpunch. Counterpunch does some excellent stuff. I've written for them off and on for over almost 20 years, I guess, Um, you you know, they're, you know, they're probably horrified by some of my stuff and vice versa, but you know, there's there's issues we agree on. So. Yeah.
0: Uh, Anything interesting that uh, you're uh, working on uh, lately that you, or even I always like to ask reporters about what's that one story that you, if you find time you think might be interesting, but you haven't started to to report it yet. What's, uh, what's, what's going on in your mind and on your, uh, word processor
1: these days mm, not much <laughs> uh well there's a number of things which uh, you know it's it's fascinating to me to you know uh i was you know emailing a friend this morning uh you know you go and you pick up the morning newspaper and uh, you know to see what's the latest COVID stuff or you see it online and it's like a horror show that never ends i mean uh if, some, if someone had asked me back in uh, january last year how would you like to write about a virus? I'll say, you nuts. You know, this is like, hey, you know, I call this dropout, get away from me. But there are public policy issues here that I've dealt with for a long time. And, you know, you look at the incentives, you look at the precedents, you look at the um, tendency of, of government power to um, uh, be like dominoes or an avalanche, and it's all there. And unfortunately, this is a battlefield that people, friends of freedom, have to fight on. And it, it doesn't mean that you're opposed to everything the government does. And it certainly doesn't mean that, that you've got to say, well, you know, there's, you know, it's, um, you know, COVID's a myth. There's no thing, no such thing. There is. A lot of people died. And, uh, you know, people should be, um, pay attention to it and uh, take precautions in their own lives as they see fit. Yeah. Uh, but um, I don't know. There's, there's so many other, you know. It's a target-rich environment, but it's a little frustrating because you feel like you hit the targets, and the targets don't go down. So, yeah,
0: eh. yeah. Well, I I think that's one thing that I like about um, uh, us libertarians is that that even when the target doesn't go down, and we were again we're speaking metaphorically for any FBI ah, people, ah, FBI people who are bargain. listening
1: for our plea uh, bargain. Thank you, sentencing uh, enhancement.
0: Right. Um, But that's the thing is like, uh, and especially, you know, my colleagues in the Mises caucus and, uh, you know, people like Scott Horton that even though, you know, Goliath, uh, you know, we've spent, you know, our our stones out of our slingshot and Goliath is still standing there. But we're still because we believe what we believe, we still are going to keep going until we can't go anymore. Right. Uh, To me, I I, I just don't have any other choice. It's probably that way for you, too. Right.
1: Yeah, and I mean it's you know it's a it's a little bit like um, I'm 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 searching for a military analogy that's not too depressing. I'm not finding any, uh, but it's you know it's who we are. It's it's our values, and we're going to keep fighting no matter how many more losses occur, and hope that at some point that there will be a critical mass of Americans who understand the perils of absolute power. And this is what we're getting closer and closer to in this country. I mean. Uh, you know, flashback to 18 months ago. If um, uh, if if someone had said to you that that the uh, you know that your governor or your president or your health star could order you to be held down and forcibly injected with an experimental vaccine, you would say you're out of your mind. Here we are. Well, and there's so many other restrictions that they're talking about. So no, people have got to people have got to keep fighting, even if we keep losing in the short term. There was a, a, a one of the best. American generals uh, in the Revolution, uh, uh, General uh, uh, Nathaniel Greene had a line um, about, about how we fight, lose, and rise and fight again. His line was better, but he was the American general who fought a number of battles against the British in South Carolina and North Carolina, lost most of the battles but weakened the British, and the, the net result was uh, surrender at Yorktown. Thanks in part to this general. So uh, simply because we're losing some battles uh, doesn't mean we're going to lose all our freedom. And besides fighting can be fun.
0: Right. I I, I look at it the same way. My wife always laughs at me because I can use baseball as an analogy for anything. And, you know, uh, I suppose other sports are kind of like this too, but baseball, you can literally be behind the entire game, every pitch, the other team can be ahead and as, but as long as you're ahead after the last pitch is thrown, you know you can hit a home run with men on base. Like that—that's kind of what how Nathaniel Green a, approached it. You just have to stay alive uh, and, and keep fighting, and, and something your enemy may get tired. So uh, yeah. we, we have a lot of we have a lot of work to do on that front.
1: Yeah, and you know, if if possible, take joy in fighting for freedom, yeah. because um, you know, there's H.L. Uh, Mencken said one horse laugh is worth 10,000 syllogisms. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, there are, there are some libertarians who I meet who are so somber and, you know, it, you know it's like they've got a cloud hanging over them. And, and you know, uh, so I think, you know, here's someone who needs to stop drinking decaf yeah. uh, or maybe light beer, I don't know. Uh, but no, I mean, you know, it's fun to raise a ruckus, peacefully, of course.
0: Absolutely. Uh, before I ask you to give uh, a plug and, and how people can engage with your work. Um, did Bob Barr ever pay you?
1: <laughs> oh, it's nice. We end on a high note. Why don't you explain uh, that to people? Yeah, I was a ghost writer for the Barr uh, libertarian candidate for president campaign in 2008. Um, and uh, Barr paid um, not quite half of what he owed. So. Um, uh, yeah, so win some, lose some. <laughs>
0: that's, uh, that's, uh, uh, yeah, I, I have, I have, uh, comments about, uh, uh, the, uh, LP's wisdom of that candidate, but, uh, we'll, we'll hold. Oh, uh, well,
1: I, Hey, it was the first bad candidate they ever had, you know, yep. last. Yeah. Yeah. Oh,
0: yeah. Well, we'll see. Um, so, uh, so, uh, one last question, but also it's, it's kind of the plug question If someone hasn't read any of your work before, let's say maybe they have uh, a little extra money and want to buy one of your books or they have an Audible credit. I don't know if some of your books are on there. What's the one book of yours that you might recommend to people as a way into your work? And and where else can they find you and engage with your stuff?
1: Well, it depends on what kind of book the person would, would enjoy reading. And it's important that they be able to get some enjoyment out of it. Um, Lost Rights was my bestseller, it sold over 50,000 copies, Um, that came out in 94, unfortunately it's not out of date, that walks people through the paradigms of uh, explaining uh, why property rights are vital to freedom, freedom of contract is vital, it shows, you know, long before it was fashionable, how both the drug war and the war on guns tie together uh, to totally undermine freedom. Uh, If you're interested in philosophical stuff, Freedom in Chains, 1999, uh, looking at some of the issues that philosophers tend to sweep aside. Uh, If you're looking for humor, Public Policy Hooligan, a memoir uh, about some of my adventures and, you know, the various times of some of my place encounters that I survived and being interrogated at the East German border for three hours and being able to lie my ass out of there and get free. So <laughs> so uh, you're on
0: Twitter, uh, website, all I'll sure.
1: us... uh, uh, at uh, Twitter, uh, at Jim Bovard, website is jimbovard.com. I've got a blog where I repost most of my articles. Um, I, I've also got the first chapters of most of my books on the, um, they're on the blog, if you want to take a free look at them. I think most of the books are on Amazon as well. Some of them are on Kindle. So uh, you know, hopefully it's good for some laughs. And, you know, thanks so much for having me on this program. It's a really great interview. And I really appreciate all your, you know, thoughtful questions and, and your own comments. And hopefully we can get people riled up enough to uh, whip the politicians next year. That that's what, uh, that's what
0: we're trying to do. Thanks for your time, Jim. It was great. Thanks a lot. And there you have it. I'd like to thank James Bovard for his time and wisdom, and for a lifetime's work of of really being an honest to God actual journalist, not uh, uh, not what we see on television in the in the papers these days. Check out links to some of Jim's articles and books. His his Twitter handle will be there as well. You can find that over at decentralizedrevolution.com/slash/660. In a few days, uh, look for episode 61. Uh, Unfortunately, there's no video. I could only get a phone call with this person. He's very busy. Um, He is one of the few Republican politicians that I think I could really stand to talk to uh, for very long. And that's the mayor of Knox County, Tennessee, uh, Glenn Jacobs, who most of you know, his previous career was as, I think he he was a world famous WWE professional wrestler. Uh, I don't know much about that world, but uh, I'm told he was at the very top of that field. He's a a well-loved character in that world, but he's also a a full-fledged Misesian, and uh, it was really nice to get to talk to him. That will be out here in a few days, episode 61. Thanks to Dave vs. Goliath for all the music you hear on Decentralized Revolution. And thanks to everyone who subscribes to our email list and gives to Mises Pack over at TakeHumanAction.com. And everyone who shares, rates, reviews, and subscribes to Decentralized Revolution. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.